0: We have two readings today. The first comes to us from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Listen for the word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but the Lord said, You shall not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so... When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that what it was desired to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and she ate of it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they saw that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. The second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. It is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly, angels came and waited on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Let us pray. Lord, on this day, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Several years ago on Remembrance Sunday, I shared in a sermon that when I studied Old Testament for the first time at Union Seminary in New York, the professor, Dr. George Landis, took a white piece of chalk and wrote on the blackboard facing the classroom the words, After the Fall. He said that in order to understand the Old Testament, And perhaps more importantly, to understand our place in the world, we need to understand that there is a great divide between the way God created us and the way we became. In Genesis 1 and 2, on this side of the divide, God creates the world as he intends it and creates the human creature in his image. Humanity and nature are at peace with one another. There is neither shame nor Fear. The world is literally a paradise. But in Genesis 3, which is only the third chapter of the Bible, while engaged in a conversation with a serpent, the original woman, who had not yet been named Eve, partakes of fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, from which God has specifically limited the man and woman from eating. She passes the fruit on to her husband who has not yet been directly referred to as Adam and he eats as well. At this point, the created order ceases to function in the way God intends it to function. But rather it functions in the way we know. Instead of seeing the good and evil they had hoped to see, The man and woman only see their own nakedness. And for the first time, they experience shame and then fear. A rift occurs between the snake and the woman, between nature and humanity, between nature and God. The man assesses blame first on the woman and then on God. The woman is inflicted with a deep desire for the bearing of children Yet such bearing occurs in pain. The man must now savagely struggle with the soil for it to yield its fruit so that he and his family might eat. The two sons born to this union break out as adults into an argument in front of the altar of God Concerning whose offering is superior. And the presenter of the mysteriously unchosen offering, Cain, is so enraged, as the text says, that his face becomes disfigured. And he kills his brother Abel. It is the first act of human violence, it is murder, it is patricide. Excuse me. This may be a long sermon. (laughs) We'll have a lot of water breaks. But this first act is... Domestic violence, it is murder, it is homicide, it is a religious difference. The drawing of blood and the taking of life over whom God accepts and whom God appears not to accept. It is the beginning of religious war after flood and rescue ark and animals dove of peace and sexual violation in his drunkenness of noah by one of his sons the gift of language that originally was used by god to create the heavens and the earth and then used by the original man to welcome enjoy the gift of the original woman this gift of language falls further than it had In the serpent's tongue, as human beings can no longer communicate with one another across differences in language at the Tower of Babel, the beauty of the two becoming one flesh of a common humanity has now become the many scattering across the earth, not understanding one another because they are filled with Babel. All of these phenomena, shame, fear, the breach between male and female, between humanity and nature, domestic violence, religious violence, nature's fury, the near unbridgeable differences between human beings across divides of language and culture and race and ethnicity and religion, all of these flow from what is called the fall. And all of it describes not the way God created the world, but the way the world has become. None of it is God's intention. None of it is God's will. None of it is God's ultimate hope for us. But all of it marks the way things are, as in the words on the blackboard, after the fall. So how did we get here as human beings? How did we get here as the human race? In many ways, we got here because of the best of our intentions. A few weeks ago, my college roommate came to town, as he does every year or so, to lecture at NIH. He's been teaching at the medical school at University of Alabama, Birmingham, for about 25 years. He's a specialist in kidney and liver transplantation. Bob remains a reluctant and restless Southern Baptist, uncomfortable with the fundamentalism that has become the expected norm in that denomination since the 1980s. But he's never been quite able to leave that tradition in which he was reared because of its music and the choir in which he and his wife continue to sing every Sunday. Bob has one of the best theological minds I've ever known, one of the best minds I've known for that matter. At a restaurant at Reagan, we somehow got to talking about the biblical narrative of the fall, the narrative that we just read. I asked Bob what the text tells us was the motivation behind the woman eating from the tree from which God had she and her husband from eating. Disobedience, Bob said quizzically. Since I had more or less baited him in the way that I asked the question, I responded, I know that disobedience is the traditional answer. I know that it's what we've been taught all our lives. But notice what the text specifies is the nature of that disobedience. What the text specifies as to her motivations. I began to recite Genesis 3, 6 from memory. I bungled it a bit, but I later pulled off to the side in my car, honestly, and texted him the exact words on my way home. These are the exact words. When the woman saw that the tree was Good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and gave it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate as well. Good for food, a delight to the eyes. Desired to make one wise. While the act of eating was indeed an act of disobedience to God, the woman didn't say when she got up that day, I'm going to get up and disobey God today. Rather, her motives were responding actually to that which was the best within her. Nourishment. Beauty. Knowledge. In eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the woman and the man are not giving into or falling into some base, crass, lower nature. Rather, they were rising. They were extending themselves. They were aspiring to exceed or excel. They were responding to all that is good and noble, all that is hopeful and helpful, not that which is base or demeaning, nourishment, beauty, knowledge. What's not to like about these motives? If we then fast forward to the gospel lesson today, which Casey read and which the choir just sang, Just as the man and woman were at the beginning of the human endeavor, in our gospel lesson, Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry. Just as they are tempted in the garden by one of the creatures God has made, the snake, Jesus is tempted directly by an adversary, the evil one. In Greek, diabolos, diabolical who Matthew calls the devil. What does the diabolical one offer Jesus? The opportunity of turning stone into bread for nourishment, his own nourishment. The text had said he was famished and implicitly the opportunity of feeding people. The opportunity of throwing himself off the pinnacle of the temple to be rescued publicly by angels in a feat that that was worthy of the soon-to-be-late Ringling Brothers Circus, creating instant faith among the masses who would witness such a feat or who would speak of such a feat. The drama of magic The opportunity to receive all of the political and economic power of the kingdoms of the world, to understand these in the way that knowledge is power, so as to bring the will and way of God among all the nations of the world by fiat rather than by freedom. Again, it's nourishment, it's drama. It's the knowledge and therefore the power to change the world. This is not a temptation to fall into some base, lower nature. It's not some grubbiness of the human spirit, some darkness of the human soul. It is a temptation to strive, to achieve, to exceed all previous limits. Again, what's not to like But the trouble is, it is often the case that when we seek to exceed who we are as individuals, as the human race, as the people of God, it is then that we fall and bring about, if not death and destruction, at least a life that is more marked by bane than by blessing, more by heartache than by hope. But our hearts are often stirred by the final lines of the poem Invictus or similar poems or songs that exalt the human spirit. The truth is I am not the master of my fate. I am not the captain of my soul. The fall was a matter of reaching, of rising, of overreaching. And thus it was a matter of hubris, of titanism. It is when the first man and the first woman stopped being the creatures they were created to be and sought to be something more that they ironically stumbled, fell, and brought into the world a sin and suffering that neither they nor it had previously known. That is the wisdom in this ancient world ancient story. By contrast, it was and is Jesus' refusal to exceed who he was sent to be, his refusal to accept the significant and appealing offer of the devil to create faith in people by turning stone into bread, by throwing himself off the temple and dazzling people into faith, by ruling through unmatched knowledge and power, It was his refusal to accept these that kept Jesus on the path as Savior, Redeemer, Messiah, all the way to the cross and resurrection. A hymn we will sing at the conclusion of this service is an odd hymn for Presbyterians, and I think it's actually not included in the new hymnal that that has come out. Because it speaks a truth, but it leaves out a truth as well. But the truth it speaks, of which it speaks, is the focus, the determination, the single-mindedness of Jesus to be who he was sent to be. Jesus walked this lonesome valley, the hymn says, He had to walk it by himself. Oh, nobody else could walk it for him. He had to walk it by himself. No other human being was to be who he was. And he was to be no one but who he was. That is why he was the one that resisted temptation. Unlike Adam and Eve in the garden, who sought to be something more, Jesus stayed utterly true to who he was sent to be. He walked this lonesome valley. So what does all of this mean for us? It's a very, in, in some ways, abstract concept and in some ways personal. And it's you know, hard to just apply in a direct situation or to speak about. But we are, I still want to try to bring it home to where it relates to where we live. We're in an odd situation in our nature and in our culture and in this city of seeming to have nearly as much opportunity as the original inhabitants of the garden. While surely we do not live in paradise, and we know that, and we do experience shame and guilt, between us in this room and in this city, we have about as much knowledge and awareness and even wisdom about the world as anyone could ask. Even though our nation is politically divided and times are not filled with consensus, Many of us, if not most of us in this room, are able to live a little above the fray and be relatively secure about our future. Just as the Garden of Eden provided near limitless blessings for its two original habitants, we have in our lives nearly limitless blessings of health and health care and prosperity and knowledge and culture and travel and art and education and religious expression and, yes, beauty. Yet what may be our downfall more than anything else is the same thing that led Adam and Eve astray. It is that temptation to be or do or know, or have, or seek more than what is rightly within our purpose and purview to have. Maybe, just maybe, we are guilty of aspiring to be something beyond who we are. It may be in the most personal aspect of our lives, in the most intimate relationship we have, it may be in our family. It may be with our dreams, our hopes, or expectations for our children or grandchildren. It may be that we exceed, expect, seek too much in our education. Maybe through our career or our vocation. Maybe our avocation. It may be that we exceed who we were created to be in what we expect from our religious life, from our church, from the community in which we live, even the nation of which we are part. It may be that what we seek for this world, in which our nation still plays an important role, from which it withdraws only at the world's peril, is more than intended to be. In any one of these areas of life, it may be that we are seeking to exceed the limits of who we are, of who we are created to be. When Jesus said no three times to the diabolical one, the devil eventually backed down and suddenly the angels came and waited on Jesus. Then soon Jesus heard that his forerunner, John the Baptist, had been arrested. He retired To the north. He began to proclaim exactly what he was sent to proclaim repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He called his first disciples. He gave his sermon on the mount. He cleansed a leper. He healed a soldier's servant, and on and on and on. He did what he was supposed to do. He walked this lonely valley. By doing what he was created to do. Nothing more. This week I came across a verse in the book of Deuteronomy with which I'll close. It's twenty nine, twenty nine. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the revealed things belong to us and to our children forever. What is revealed to us by God in our lives about our role and our purpose comes in a variety of ways. And it usually comes clouded But however you have come to sense or believe or know what your role is, what your place is, what your purpose is, go with that. Stick with that. Live into that. Leave the secret things of God in the garden for now where they belong and where you will meet them someday when you are restored to that place. Amen.